Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. All right, Ashish, welcome to Strategic Financial Leadership. I'm excited to have you on the show today. You know, when I was at uh, the Fuqua School of Business and I was in your international strategy class, you know, I just, I really admired thoughts that you had on strategy and your perspective. So I'm excited to have you on the show today and to have you share these insights that you have and, and some, some new things that you're working on with our audience. So welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Steve. Well, I, I want to start with um, your passion for teaching and you know, what made you want to be a professor originally? And was this your life plan or did you have different aspirations? And, and talk to me a little bit about your journey here. Sure. Um, in all honesty, um, I'm not a very planful person and I suppose I drifted into this in some ways as a line of least resistance. Growing up in India, you basically had two choices, be an engineer or a doctor, and neither appealed to me, and neither did becoming a banker. So so I sort of drifted into, into being an academic. But the question of passion for teaching, I think in pretty much every job, there's a crucial element of sales, of trying to sell ideas or trying to persuade people to get them to see, you know, an important part of the world in the way that one thinks about it. And teaching is is very much like that. I got a real kick out of engaging with teaching. The second thing I'll say on this is I did not realize it earlier in my career, but I have learned a great deal from trying to teach. I I cannot say whether my students learned much, but I certainly learned a great deal in in trying to trying to communicate ideas. As I have, you know, grown older, I find that having to teach new things is a way of keeping myself young. Yeah, absolutely. So why business? Why didn't you teach psychology or engineering or or some other topic? Were you always fascinated about business? No, that's a really interesting point. My training is as an economist. I have a PhD in economics. And for the first part of my career, in fact, probably for the first half, for the first 17 years, I taught economics, not business. But my research, which is on innovation, inevitably means that I have to understand business. And I'll give you a specific answer to your question. Around 1997, I led an effort that was trying to understand the long-run dynamics of, of the United States chemical industry. And one interesting thing about the U.S. chemical industry was that whereas a lot of other industries in, in America you know, were dying or decaying, the chemical industry remained very vibrant and had been so for a, for a very long period. And we wanted to understand why it was. And you know, there was a large 
team of scholars that looked at different aspects of tax policy, macroeconomic policy, interest rates, all sorts of things. And in the end, the conclusion I drew from that exercise was none of those things really explained why the U.S. chemical industry remained a leading industry in the world and that the answer had to lie in in companies and and the decisions that managers in those companies had made 30, 40 years ago and the impact of those decisions uh, circa 1990s. And so I became more and more convinced that if I had to understand the process of innovation and how it affected you know, prosperity and GDP growth and, and, and things of that kind, I really had to understand, to get inside companies and understand much more than economists typically do about how companies work and how business works. And that's sort of how I landed up at, at a business school. That's interesting. And it, it's interesting how you, you mentioned earlier uh, this idea about um, sharing ideas and, and being able to uh, persuade or to encourage people or motivate people to act based on these ideas. And I'm sure that you've progressed um, throughout your career. And as you've learned uh, different styles or you've learned different things about your delivery, how has that changed? Because I, th- I think this is a very important idea because whether you're a CFO of a company or a CEO or you're a founder and you're trying to raise capital or you're in sales or whatever position you're in, this idea of being able to you know, share your perspective with others and to motivate them to do something with these insights is really critical. So how has your thinking and approach changed over the years when it comes to sharing ideas and, and persuading people and motivating people to act? It's a good question, Steve. I'm, I'm not sure I've, I've thought about it carefully enough to give you a complete answer, but I will say a couple of things. One is, as I've grown older, I've become more modest about my ability to do stuff on the fly. And what that has meant is that I've prepared more. So it's simply trying to think through what I would say or what points I would make. And if I have time to think think through it more and prepare more. So it, this, it sounds trite, but I think it's no less true for that. Have, having prepared more carefully before means I'm more likely to succeed. And the second aspect of that is that the realization that there is a trade-off between being clear and being precise. This is a particular problem for academics. We're trained to be very precise, but a great deal of precision can just come across like a lot of jargon uh, or a lot of pointless detail and obscure the main point that I want to communicate. And that's a constant struggle because my professional training as, a, as an academic and my instincts as a teacher are then pulling in, in different directions. Yeah, that is interesting. One interesting characteristic or attribute I'm about you that I observed, you know, just by taking that the international strategy course with you is that, you know, it was heavily case-based and we would have these discussions in the classroom and, and oftentimes you would be kind of in the background observing the, the conversation and ensure you're facilitating what we were discussing. But oftentimes you just let us kind of process things out loud and sometimes like, okay, sheesh, like step in here, tell us the answer. But maybe that's a good example, you know, for us as leaders to not always be the loudest person in the room 
and and be really careful and intentional and deliberate in our thinking and you know the way that we we process information and the way that we communicate. Can you talk a little bit more about um, this style of yours and and what is your thought on on leaders? Do you have to be the the loudest person in the room to be able to convey ideas most effectively, or can you kind of take a backseat and and still be a powerful leader? So you've you've raised a very important point. I had not thought about it in that sense, but yes, I learned that lesson the hard way. I, I can get into that, but but essentially the point was in many cases I don't have to make my opinion known, and that in some ways it might be more effective not to do that. Our instinct is to try to share and say, okay, here's what I think, or you know, you've you've just made a mistake here, or you're not thinking about this clearly, and. I'd say both as a, particularly as an instructor, I've tried to do that because that's that's kind of the Socratic method is to let people discover things for themselves and hash things out for themselves. But the point you made, Steve, about this being a trait of leaders is a really valuable point. In many cases, good leadership is about letting people have their say, letting them discover things for themselves, to try to sort of minimize you know, one's own viewpoint um, without necessarily, you know, being deceptive about it. You know, when I would walk into a meeting, I would have a clear agenda and I might say, okay, here's the things we need to accomplish or decide on. But it doesn't mean that we would have to get there in, in my own way or that we would necessarily have to get to the decision I was favoring. Some case, sometimes that's inevitable where you have to say, yes, I hear you, but there are things that you know you guys don't know about, and here's why we have to do it this way. But I think the point that you've made is a really important one, which is of listening and letting people have their say, and to some extent, being open-minded about things. Sometimes we we get invested in our ideas because of ego or other things, and there may be better ways to accomplish a particular objective that's different from what one had originally envisaged, and that's that's fine. The other part of this, of course, is this idea, I'll, I'll give you the metaphor, which is from, from, from the army, which is uh, officers eat last. So to be an effective leader, you've got to make sure that your troops are fed and quartered first before you eat. And if you can live that, then it's, it's easier to get people to follow you in some ways. Uh, not everybody can be a charismatic leader, but everybody can certainly, you know, if they want to lead to be, make, to be sure that they eat last. No, and I, I like that. And I, you bring up a lot of great points. And, you know, I, I know that I've made mistakes in, in leadership roles. You know, I remember when I was a CFO, you know, I'd, I'd show up to a meeting and I felt the pressure to have all the answers, right? I felt like I had to speak up and dominate the conversation because that was my role as presenting on, you know, this strategic piece or, you know, as presenting financials or, or whatever it was, I felt like I had to be that dominating voice, or like I said, just have all the data and, and be able to, to, you know, just persuade. And then when I realized that that approach wasn't always effective or it just shut down the whole entire room, right. And we right. wouldn't get the collaboration that we needed. I realized that I needed to change and, and trust me, I'm still not perfect at this because sometimes I do still feel that pressure to, to say, Hey, you know, you have to speak up and you have to you know, be loud to be heard, but I, I don't think that's necessarily true. And I think what you've been able to, you know, teach me through your example and, and basically what you just said has been very powerful. 
so kind of switching gears here, I, I want to talk about something that, that you're, you're really passionate about right now. You're actually teaching a course around this idea of shared purpose within business. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that and how did that come about? Yes, the great, great point. Um, first, I think this is the only course of its kind, at least in American business schools and maybe elsewhere. So many, many uh, schools have, have courses on, you know, social enterprise or things of that kind. Our, our dean firmly believes that business can be a force for good but then felt that our curriculum did not adequately reflect that. And so a couple of years, I would say two and a half years ago, we had extensive discussions among our faculty. And with some misgivings, the faculty agreed to create a new core course. So every student who comes into Fuqua, right now it's it's being piloted in the daytime program, but eventually it will, it will be taught in, in all the programs. Every student has to take this course. It's tentatively called Business and Common Purpose. And the basic idea is this. When we teach business, we, we use this, this idea that the objective of the business is to maximize profits or long-run shareholder value or some such thing, which is reasonable in many circumstances. But increasingly, business leaders, particularly in large firms, but also, you know, and large is relative because if you're in a small community, even a medium-sized firm may be a large firm for its community. Sure. That business leaders are being asked to not only think about maximizing returns to their shareholders, but also play an important role in their community and their in society. And they are being pulled in many different directions. So ESG is now part of the you know lexicon for many uh, you know for many companies, and Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, has written letters to his portfolio companies saying, "Hey, you must have a purpose." And there's been a lot of back and forth about, well, do you want us to make money or do you want us to to do good? And this course is really about trying to not so much provide the answers because I don't think we we have all the answers but it's trying to provide a, a vocabulary and a framework for, okay, how do we think about this issue? What is the relationship between the pursuit of some social purpose relative to the pursuit of shareholder returns? How do we think about it? You know, under what circumstances do they have? Is there a trade-off between shareholders and other stakeholders? When is it a win-win? When can one do well by doing good? What are the things that have to be true uh, inside an organization for that happy outcome to be realized? You know, this is the first time we're trying it, and our intent was not to tell students what they must think, but as is our goal always, you know, how to think about this issue, not what they must, what conclusions they must come to. I can can tell you more, but let me just stop here, see if you have questions. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Well, I, I think it's interesting. 
you know, you bring up a, a multitude of questions that I have. You know, I was I was a CFO of a renewable energy company, and what our business did is we built utility scale solar farms. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the massive solar farms out in the middle of the desert. You know, it is considered an ESG company and had a purpose, and that purpose was to deliver clean energy throughout the world, and and, and we did a great job at that. But when I was attending these different conferences and talking with other peers and and networking throughout the industry, you know, what we were seeing in the industry is just this constant decay of the power purchase agreement pricing. And in that pricing, the PPA, the pricing for energy, right, ultimately dictates the financial returns of these projects. Well, mm-hmm. you know, earlier in the in the previous decade, you know, when solar was coming out, you know, the returns were much higher. The profit pool is much bigger for, you know, everybody within the the vertical stack, whether it is the the developer, whether it is the the contractor building the the sites and and the operators, the profit pool is much bigger. But then more players came in, competition increased, that pool started to shrink. But then investors still, you know, they want, they they believe, you know, to your point, they believe in this this whole ESG trend movement. And they believe that companies like this, they're not only delivering cleaner energy and renewable energy and impacting these communities, but they're investing in these things. But what what I saw is this trend where the returns for equity providers was constantly decreasing. So I guess my question to you is like, does, does it get to the point where the coolness or the sexiness of the trend starts to fade and equity providers start thinking, wow, you know, like I'm going after these risky projects or I'm engaging in, you know, these investments and the the returns are, they, they don't make sense. They don't match the risk that I'm, I'm pursuing. And is there a correction or do you believe that you can find some type of, you know, harmony between these two things, right? The do good, but also right make adequate returns for, you know, what you're engaging in. Cause I, I don't think people are out there just throwing money away. I mean, that that's called charitable contributions, right? Exactly. And I think what you pointed out to is just one of the fundamental truths that in the end, social enterprises are still enterprises that even if, if you have a strong social mission, you still have to make enough of a return to justify the capital investment. And in fact, it's not only that you should, that it's, it's important because that's how the market provides signals that you're doing, doing the right thing, that you're providing something that is valuable and that we should do more of. So I think that the, the, the set of issues you raised is, is exactly on point. Now, first, the way I would think about it is, you know, what was the purpose of your company? whether there was an explicit social purpose or whether there is simply this recognition that in providing this particular service of setting up utility-scale solar plants, you are also helping accomplish an important societal goal, namely sort of reducing you know, greenhouse gas emissions or you know, providing clean energy and so on. So, so that's one is whether having clarity on purpose. And the second issue, which is, okay, what is the set of possibilities is it possible to have win-wins? And in some cases, it is. There are instances of where, because companies were passionately pursuing a purpose, they were able to attract employees and other contributors and stakeholders and partners. And the result was that they could accomplish both the societal objective while also yielding um, higher shareholder returns. And I'll say there are instances of this happening the large-scale evidence on this is far more limited, and I would say much of the literature that I read was aspirational rather than scientific. 
In other words, it, that the hope was that if you were doing good, you might be able to do well. But whether this was going to be true on average is not clear. I've come to the following conclusion, Steve, which is there is no shame in acknowledging that in trying to do good, we might have to do a little bit less well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, we might not be able to completely make all the returns that one would want. And that we're going to give it up in order to be a better citizen in our community, in, in order to be um, a better employer or, you know, whatever, whatever objectives and values the organization has. I think the shame is in not knowing. In other words, it's okay to say, you know what, we sacrificed, you know, 100 basis points of return, but we did, we did the right thing. You know, we, we didn't go and employ somebody who, who, who uses child labor or who burns, you know, d- dirty fuel or whatever is, is, is the thing that you care about. Sure. I think the shame is in saying, oh, you know, we did these things and we think as a result we, we came off better or, or is being sort of confused about what we would like the world to be and what the world actually is. Let's talk about that because, you know, what's interesting is, you know, I, I've watched the movie, The Big Short. I like that movie. And in that movie, there's a part where they allude to basically everybody's doing it. And if you're not out there doing these these shady loans or these high risk loans out there, this is back with the sure. housing bubble and the housing crisis, right? If you weren't out there doing these loans, um, these ninja loans, no income loans, no no verification loans, then somebody else would be doing it. So I guess my my question is, you know, I, I think it's all good for a company to say, hey, look, we're not going to work with companies in other countries that use child labor, right? Even if it means that we could get our cost per t-shirt or cost per unit down. So if they say, okay, we're not going to engage in that. We're going to, you know, use manufacturers who are using, you know, labor that's equitable and and where people can make a living and and be compensated fairly for their efforts. But that means that our our price per unit is about to double or quadruple. Do you think the market will value that or is the market just going to disregard that and still go towards you know the companies that may not care about the shared purpose sure. and then and then thus it, it creates like this pressure for the other companies to sacrifice what they so, believe in so Does that I, make sense? I think Steve you raised a really important point and this is one of the things that I think we've been hoping to clarify is let's take your example in some case the market says you know what no we we're not going to let you double the price of your t-shirts if you do that your you know your market share crashes and goes to a you know a third of what it was Let's, let's suppose that's the case. Mm-hmm. At that point, as as a company, you now have this important decision to make, which is how much do we care about this idea of not employing child labor versus, you know, making money and selling T-shirts? And this will vary. You know, th- this will be different in different cases. In some cases, you might say, you know what, I really don't like child labor, but I've got workers here and their children will, will you know, will be on the streets if we don't get this product out. And you may make the decision, hey, this is what we're going to do. In other cases, you know, you, you could you could market it if you have good PR and good, good marketing and you're creative about messaging the mission. You know, it, it may still cost you in terms of shareholder return, but you may still have a business. So first, this, this is the first thing I would say is I, I don't think one or the other. I think it's going to be case by case. And as, as a leader, you have to make that decision. And we talked about that. The second thing, I'll give you an example. We were discussing something in, in class, and we were discussing, you know, minimum wage. And to cut to the chase, a student made the following observation. He said, if your business model only survives where you're paying, you know, 
below minimum wage or minimum wage that if you cannot if your if your business cannot survive and increase you know paying people a living wage the student said you don't really have a business model hmm. he said you don't have a viable business that's the second point i would like i would say is if you believe that what you're concerned about say child labor or clean energy if you think these issues are going to become more salient in the future and there will be societal actions that will change the landscape making it more important for example that we not use child labor or we use clean energy then you've got to think about that now and say hey in that case you know do i really have a viable business if it depends on using for example or working with companies that use child labor so i think both of those are are relevant things i mean there are other aspects as well you know having to do with how you think laws will change and prices will change but these these are i think important things for for leaders to think about sure i mean because don't you think business is really about this idea of enduring right it's it's about building an enduring company i mean sure i guess you could build a, a company for the short term and say hey we're going to come in and we're going to maximize returns over the next decade and reap whatever we can and then if it doesn't work out, then that's fine. But I, I think most businesses out there should be focused on this long-term endurance. And, and that may mean like, if you look at cumulative returns, shareholder returns, sure, you know, like other businesses may take shortcuts and do things that are short-term and thinking to boost returns, right? But then later on they fizzle out and then the company, you know, dies off or whatever. So maybe you, you have 10 years of strong returns versus a company that has 30 years of sustainable returns or- right you know, enduring returns. What's your thought on that? Is is that the purpose of business is to endure or do businesses just have this life cycle and you just go in and, and maximize returns while they last? Well, so it's, it's a really interesting point and we talked about it. And sometimes a responsible management will think about how to die gracefully, that it's not always the right thing to try to live forever, both for humans and for businesses. So that's at the high level, you know, thinking about as a shareholder, I don't necessarily want business, you know, my investments to be short term oriented, but I also don't necessarily want them to want to live forever. That in some cases, a graceful death is what I would want. So, you know, my classic example of this is AOL Time Warner and think of the massive destruction of shareholder value that occurred when essentially Time Warner tried to live on forever instead of dying gracefully. That's from a, you know, I'm think, putting on my economics hat and saying, what's, what's the right thing from the whole economy point of view? Just as, you know, for the health of any, any herd, you know, you do want young blood in there and the older in the species may have to die, and that's fine. Now, putting on my hat as a, as a kind of a business school professor, I think about how an organization that was preparing to die gracefully would recruit and attract people to work for it. And I haven't cracked that problem, but I, I realize that there is a value in, in companies trying to endure because that means that for somebody who, who's, you know, coming into the company, they see their future, you know, as, as being much longer. Then, whereas if I, if I told you, Steve, come work for me, and by the way, next year we'll be out of business, you put yourself in, in the shoes of that and you'd say, well, really, why do I want to come work for something that's going to die in one year? Sure. Uh, and so maybe that's unreasonable. And I say, okay, Steve, we'll be out of business in two years or three years or four years. But there's something about potentially enduring forever that makes it a more, more interesting, more exciting for an employee in terms of investing in the business and putting their heart and soul into, into the business. So to sum up, I think there are contradictory impulses from an economics efficiency point of view. I think it may be fine 
for companies not to try to endure forever. Mm-hmm. And I give you an example when that does happen and it's bad. But at the same time, at an organizational level and in thinking about attracting and motivating people to come in and you know work hard, not having a finite time horizon is a good thing. Having a longer sort of infinite horizon where they can look as far and not see any limits is important and useful. And the job of a leader is to somehow square the circle, be able to to honestly promise that the company will endure, but also have the have the wisdom and the humility to realize when it's time to prepare for a graceful death. Yeah, well said. Well, let's pivot here for a second and talk about consumer goods companies. So Jessica Alba and her company, The Honest Company, they just went public uh, just a few days ago with their IPO. So the, the company's out there and, and we've used their products with our kids, whether it's their diapers or their shampoo or their sunscreen. So like, I, I believe in the purpose of the company and it's, you know, Hey, we're honest, we're transparent. We're not going to use harmful chemicals in our products. But then you have some other consumer good giant companies that they still have maybe harmful chemicals within their products. And now they're, they're starting to realize, oh no, <laughs> you know, honest company, now they're going to get more capital in the markets. They're, they're probably going to grow. They're going to now start fighting for our market share. We should probably react. Or there's like snack companies, right? Where it's like high fructose corn syrup or other things that are in their products. They realize that the market is now saying, hey, we don't want this garbage in the granola bars or in the cereal or whatever it is. And companies right. have already started pivoting to take those things out. And now they put it on their package. We don't have this. Mm-hmm. We don't have this. We don't have that. But then there's other companies. It, it seems like they're stubborn and they're like, well, we're just not going to change. But you would think that leadership, they've had these discussions. And I, I don't think these are people that are not intelligent or like prideful people. So what is it about organizations like where some of them are purpose-driven and they get this and they stand behind it? And then there's other organizations and, and trust me, they're, they're well capitalized. They, they have smart people on their team. They, they get all this stuff. Why don't they pivot? Is it too difficult to pivot once you've gone down a certain path for so long? Yeah, exactly. I think you're, you're hitting it. Exactly. I mean, change is hard. Changing large organizations is also very hard. You know, it's an uncertain endeavor. We're not sure what the outcomes will be. I don't know a great deal about these. I did read a very nice, uh, we, we do a case study of Pepsi and how Pepsi was trying to deal with some of these issues uh, that you raised, Steve, in terms of, you know, basically making their snacks healthier mm-hmm. while still fundamentally remaining a snack company, right? I mean, if you think about, you know, Pepsi and Frito-Lays and all that kind of good stuff. Sure. Dramatically changing things is is hard. I'll give you an example from your own, an industry closer to yours, Steve, which is think about how BP and Exxon have been reacting to things. And BP are saying things like, you know, we'll be net oil zero by 2050 or something like that. Mm-hmm. That they'll basically not be selling any oil after 2050. And Exxon's not. And it's not obvious to me what the right response is. And this, I think, goes back to the issue I raised earlier. It may be that the right thing for a company that's going to find it difficult to change, let's say they sell, you know, high salty snacks, and for various reasons, they're not going to be able to change quickly or or effectively. Maybe the right thing for them to do is to, in fact, die gracefully. Mm-hmm. And you might imagine that's Exxon's strategy. They say, well, we basically what we know how to do is is find oil dig it out and refine it. And we could try to get into solar and, and wind and all that kind of stuff, but we'd probably not be as good as, as our competition. From a shareholder point of view, you'd basically be throwing good money after bad. Sure. 
And so maybe the right thing for them to do is to just gracefully go down, you know, fade away. And I wonder if, you know, from a strategic point of view, whether that's the calculus that the leaders in these other companies that are not changing are taking. It's an interesting perspective because in some ways it's almost counterintuitive, right? You know, if you're a leader and you're, you're sitting in a board meeting and you're saying, hey, I think maybe we should, you know, allow our company to die gracefully and maybe we go acquire other brands or other businesses that already have this common purpose foundation, right? So we're not trying to like reinvent the company, which is really difficult. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that may be, I mean, it makes sense. I, I just wonder how tough that would be to try to persuade people to to do something like that because i mean it's bold right it's a it's a bold big move yeah i mean in some ways it's like you know you do the analysis and you say yeah we could change but we would always be worse than you know most of our competitors because we have a series of disadvantages sure right we have this legacy our production systems our processes our supply you know there's a whole set of reasons why even if you could change you might not be able to compete successfully mm-hmm and the change itself is going to be expensive, right? You're going to take a lot of capital and, and resources to try to make the change. And then I think as a shareholder, I would certainly want the leadership of those companies to think hard about what the options are and to keep a graceful death as an option. And I agree with you, this doesn't get talked about enough. And one reason is because nobody wants to do it. And no manager is going to pay a bunch of consultants to come and tell them, hey, you guys should basically die. But yeah. that may, in fact, be the right advice. And I agree with you. And, it, and like you said, it, I mean, if you don't do that, the alternative is a death that's much more painful and, and it ends up resulting in massive losses, right? And, and other implications. Yeah. What, what I mean, I'll give you, I'm sorry, just to, just to belabor this, my, my dad, um, you know, he's passed, but as a stage that the doctor discovered something on prostate, you know, his prostate. And there was a big question of, okay, what should we do about it? And basically the doctor who was, who was a smart guy, you know, looked at us and he said, look, he didn't use those words, but he said, basically he will die of something else before the prostate kills him. And so the decision was you don't touch anything. There is this built in bias, which is fed by consultants which I've caricaturized as don't just stand there, do something. Whereas in many cases, it should be the reverse. Stand there, don't do anything. You know, this is not a problem that you can fix and trying to fix it will only make it worse. Which is a tough perspective, right? To like, it's tough to put that into place, right? Exactly. It's not in the incentive systems of the way we think about stuff. Because we would want it not to be so. We would want something to be done. But sometimes it's like you accept, okay. I mean, I'm not saying this is every company should do this. That, that, that's not at all. But it should be part of the options to consider is even if we succeeded, are we likely to be successful at it? Even if we successfully changed, could we actually compete? And would we be among the market leaders? And if not, do we have assets that could be deployed more effectively by other companies. And to a sense, in some ways, the kind of the private equity investment banking world does that, right? They'll, they'll see a company like that and say, hey, guys, instead of changing, here are the valuable things about you. Let's take those assets and try to put them somewhere else where they can be redeployed more effectively. Sure. And I'm not saying they always get it right, but it's certainly worth keeping that as an option in a leader's toolkit. Yeah, I agree. And, and let's talk about uh, strategy a little bit more. 
I mean, obviously this is a, a domain of expertise for you. And, you know, I, I love how you have like the economic side that an innovation that ties into all this. So just, it fortifies your, you know, your knowledge base and your acumen and strategy. I, I work with a lot of companies and there are a lot of companies out there that get strategy right. Right. And they, they have great approaches that they follow and um, they have a good understanding of, of how it works. I also work with other companies that may not be as developed or sophisticated when it comes to strategy, right, wrong, or indifferent. You know, there's some strategy misunderstanding where people may believe that it's uh, about defining a, a purpose and a mission and some values and then setting some goals, but it's not really strategy. So from your perspective, like what do people misunderstand when it comes to strategy? Are, are there some things that you've recognized over the years or talk to me a little bit about this idea? You know, this is a conversation you and I should have a bit more, but for me, strategy is driven by by the problem at hand, which is to say, okay, what is it that we'd like to accomplish? And then sort of trying to work backwards and that's not always how the documents get written. You know, once you see the plans, they don't get necessarily written in this way. But my instinct is to be a little bit more sort of, here's the problem, here's what we're trying to solve, and then work backwards into and think about and deploy whatever, you know, the various other strategy frameworks or tools that we have and think about what data we would want to collect. And the, the other thing is, I would say, for most practical strategy problems is that they require a great amount of business judgment, and that's not always apparent to me. You know, people sort of try to find, at least in the things I'm familiar with, they, they try and sort of seek refuge in data. And, you know, I'm a big believer in data when it's available. But in the end, these, these things boil down to, as, as a wise person once said, what do we have to believe for this thing to work, for the strategy to work, or whatever we're thinking about I'm not sure I've given you a good answer, Steve, and you probably have better ones than than mine. No, I, and I, I think that's an interesting perspective about it. And and I like how you said, you know, like being very clear on on the problem at hand, the problem that you're trying to solve. I mean, oftentimes, you know, companies they can come up with these strategic plans and um, these PowerPoint decks and and all this stuff with recommendations and whatnot. But the the problem isn't really clear. So I, I definitely agree with that. I just think you know tying everything together with with what you said, I mean, sometimes strategy may be doing something. Sometimes strategy may include doing nothing. Um, I mean, it, there, there's so many different facets to it. it. It's very nuanced. I'm sure we could have a full conversation about strategy beyond what we're having right now, just because there, there's so much to it. It's so dynamic. But I, I think you've shared some very interesting perspectives today. Thank you very much. So yeah, I'm grateful for your time and I'm grateful for your thought leadership out there and the work that you're putting in. I, I, I really like this idea of this common purpose in business and in what you're doing there. I think that's a very important thing to be discussed. I really like how you know Fuqua is, is taking the lead on this because I think it's just a topic that's going to be more and more pervasive out there in uh, the world of business as time goes on. So thank you for sharing your insights once again, Ashish. And, you know, I, I wish you well as you continue to go out there and, and make an impact on so many people's lives and in the world of business. Thank you, Steve. Nice, nice catching up again. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at I would love to connect. All the best. 